Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 16th, 2019. Coming up, we'll feature three Colorado scientists. One says marijuana users need more pain medicine during surgery. Folks who have been told all along that cannabis is completely benign, what they've been told may not be completely accurate. Another says a simple balance test can help evaluate concussion symptoms. There's a destabilizing effect that you can observe. We'll finish the show with a scientist who's performing tonight at CU Boulder's BioFrontiers Institute. He turns science data into music. It's in a frame shift mutation, and by doing it musically, it just sort of highlights that idea. Let's go right into these recent studies from Colorado scientists, starting with a study about how to predict just how long symptoms are likely to last when a child gets a blow to the head. Concussion symptoms, such as dizziness or headaches or confusion, generally resolve in about four weeks. But sometimes a child needs therapies for months. At Children's Hospital Colorado, David Howell says a good predictor of how long symptoms may last is a test that's over a century old. It's the Romberg Balance Test. Way back in the 1800s, a German neurologist named Moritz Heinrich Romberg developed the simple test where you stand still for 20 seconds with your eyes shut while someone watches how much you sway back and forth. David Howell says this Romberg balance test can help identify kids who will need more therapeutic help, whether they really are having trouble with balance or if they're kidding around or faking it. If you want to try the Romberg test at home, here's David Howell explaining it. What you have the patient do is simply stand uh, with their eyes closed, their feet together, and their hands on their hips for about 20 seconds or so. So let's tell our listeners again, if they want to try this, just stand with your feet together for 20 seconds and just hold still. And if you're really brave, close your eyes. Yeah, exactly. What are you looking for as somebody does this Romberg test? Primarily what we look for is one of two different things that we would classify as kind of an abnormal Romberg test. One would be just the inability to stand um, and maintain just a, a vertical posture where you're kind of swaying uncontrollably. The second thing would be an exaggerated movement where the patient is actually kind of purposefully trying to, to move around, but it doesn't appear that they have a true neuro- neurological problem or uh, instability. It's more that they're trying to, to show that they're actually hurt. It's interesting that it also identify somebody who is faking it, you know, kidding around, which actually is a way to identify someone who will have a longer time to recover. What, how do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, so overall, you know, in our, in our entire study of the patients that we evaluated, um, I kind of have to qualify it, only about 20% uh, demonstrated this abnormal Romberg test. And of those 20%, some had this kind of uh, exaggerated movement, and some had this kind of true postural instability where they weren't able to uh, maintain that vertical upright posture. And I think what our study shows is that in either event, it doesn't really, I mean, it does matter what, which profile they show, but in either case, those patients that can't maintain that upright posture for whatever reason um, are probably more likely to develop longer-term symptoms and should be referred earlier to specialists, referral. At least the clinician or physician that that is uh, doing the examination should pay kind of special attention to them, kind of a red flag um, from this, again, kind of simple screening tool. It's not the end-all, be-all test. It's just a brief screen that can help kind of uh, identify the appropriate treatment pathway for that patient. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about what is happening with balance when somebody isn't kidding around or faking it. What are the three systems that get tested with this Romberg test that have to do with balance? It's a combination of visual, vestibular, and somatosensory input that's required to um, maintain balance during this task. And so the, the best example I can give is, you know, you can have somebody do it while they're standing with their eyes open and you can very easily remove the visual input that the brain is requiring to maintain stability by having them close their eyes. So if you have them stand there and their uh, eyes are open, you have them remove that visual input by closing their eyes and there's a destabilizing effect that you can observe, there's likely some sort of reliance on the visual system to maintain that postural stability. Um, and that can then help identify, you know, who the appropriate personnel is that can help you manage that patient or get them, um, you know, the appropriate physical therapy or whatever it is for that individual patient. Okay. So if I'm with my friend and we're mountain biking and he falls and bonks his head and then he gets up and says, really, I'm fine. And I say, well, let's have you stand still for a little bit and just let me watch you. And I see him swaying back and forth. He needs to go see a doctor for sure. I would say anytime somebody gets in a mountain bike accident or anything like that, I will qualify that, that yes, they they definitely should. Um, I will also say that there's, you know, again, there's really no perfect test. So this is one of many tests. This is something that can help inform that. Just because somebody performs perfectly on it doesn't mean that they don't have a concussion or vice versa if they can't maintain stability. There are other factors that could be responsible for this in that context. Um, you know, just being a little bit fatigued could affect your ability to do that. So it's not going to rule out all concussions as well. But this is one thing that could certainly help um, identify, you know, if you're not able to, to do this one simple thing, um, there may be some underlying physiological abnormalities uh, that are a result of the brain injury that, that certainly warrant somebody going into the doctor. And then if somebody is kidding around and you say to a kid, Stand still with your hands on your sides. I want to see how good your balance is. And they are doing a little sway dance, if you will. You know, they're swaying back and forth. That may not be necessarily the brain injury, but it says this person may need more help to get past the injury. Certainly. David Howell is with Children's Hospital Colorado. His paper about the Romberg balance test and how it helps evaluate concussion symptoms has just been published today in the Journal of Neurosurgery Pediatrics. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. You've probably heard that some strains of marijuana reduce the severity of childhood epilepsy. You may know people who use cannabis to alleviate symptoms from a variety of diseases. Data for some of these health claims is actually pretty compelling. But because marijuana is a federally illegal drug, it's very hard to get paid for doing research. And that includes research into potential risks. Now, a doctor in Grand Junction has figured out an ingenious way to analyze something he's been noticing among his patients. That doctor is Mark Twardowski. He does colonoscopies, and his data shows that people who report using marijuana need more pain meds during the procedure 
than people who don't use it. The study actually looked at how much medication it required for sedation to do endoscopic procedures in folks who use cannabis versus people who don't. Um, Such as a colonoscopy? Yeah, colonoscopy, upper endoscopy, those sorts of things. Uh, And we kept it fairly specific to that so we could kind of more easily tease out the, the specifics of the cannabis effect. But anyway, what we found was that in all three commonly used medications for sedation for endoscopic procedures, folks who use cannabis regularly required substantially more medicine to attain appropriate sedation for the procedure. Now, your data showed that it took, what, about 14% more of that opioid-like drug that's causing so much trouble Fentanyl, is that right? Correct. That doesn't sound like very much more. Well, it's a consistent effect, and if you looked at the other two medications used, midazolam and then the propofol, the effects were even greater in those medicines. So 14% isn't a huge amount more, but it is a consistent effect. And how much more was it for the medicine where you had to use the most additional when somebody was a regular cannabis user? Uh, The propofol, I think, and unfortunately I don't have the study right in front of me, I'm I, I think it was about sixty percent from what you well, said. Well, two hundred twenty percent for the propofol. Oh my gosh, two hundred twenty is a lot. What is the significance of this? What does this mean for patients taking these kinds of procedures? The problem really is that cannabis has not been appropriately studied because it's been listed as a Schedule One drug forever. Oh, that means that you can't use uh, federal money to research it. And if you are paid by a federal group in any way, you're in trouble if you try to research this. Well, how did you research it then? We did it for free, basically. (laughs) There there was no payment. We weren't reimbursed for our time or anything. We just did it because we saw the study basically was begging to be done. Uh, We had noticed a trend that we thought we saw. And instead of just guessing, we actually went back and pulled data and ran the study. What is certainly interesting is folks who have been told all along that cannabis is completely benign, what they've been told may not be completely accurate because clearly there's some effect in the body that's requiring more medicine to accomplish appropriate sedation. Are you opposed to or okay about cannabis, but you just like it be more studied or do you just think it's bad? I have no axe to grind in this at all. We are completely neutral. We're we're Switzerland on the use of cannabis. We, We simply noticed that in a medical setting that there was a trend. What I would say from what patients need to know is you can't say for sure that the cannabis isn't having an effect in the body because it does seem to affect something that's requiring more medicine to be used for something simple as a sedation for a procedure. The question that has to come up next is, is it affecting the way pain medicines or other medicines work in those folks? And the basic science really needs to be done to sort that out. Thank you for explaining that. And you're, everybody's kind of locked in because they can't study it if they get any federal monies at all. It's interesting. Ours is the first study, as, as far as we can tell, that's ever been done looking at these combinations of medicines with the effect of cannabis. Uh, and that's just really odd because you know, it's not like cannabis is a new thing. It's just nobody's had the guts to study it because it's, it's scary. You know, if you start studying it, in any sort of meaningful way, you worry about the federal government. So we, we simply did a data collection and didn't use any funds to do it and just did it because we saw a trend and thought it needed to be tracked down. What's the deal? If somebody uses more pain medicines during a procedure, 
is it just a matter of them, well, heck, they got to use more pain medicine, or is there a medically risky thing that happens when more pain medicine needs to be used? The concern is we don't know if the effect that cannabis has on requiring higher doses of pain medicine is only on the analgesic effect or whether it is on the analgesic and respiratory suppression effect. If, for instance, it was only on the analgesic effect, in other words, if the cannabis only makes the analgesic less effective but doesn't also delay the onset of respiratory suppression to where people stop breathing, that could be really dangerous because requiring higher doses to get pain relief would be pushing you closer to the dose that would make your respiration shut off. Oh, so this is a stop breathing issue if pain medicine has to go too high. Right, so that's certainly the potential risk, but once again, that hasn't been studied at all because that's some basic science stuff that that we haven't been allowed to study. If indeed the pain relief and the respiratory suppression window is closing, then requiring substantially higher doses all of a sudden could put you into trouble with respiratory issues. And actually, when we go into phase two of our study, which looks at requirements for post-op pain medicine, as well as required for requirements for all anesthesia, as opposed to just those simple anesthetics used for sedation for procedures, like endoscopic procedures, we're going to look at some of those other issues, too. How much medicine does it take to control somebody's pain post-operatively? And are we getting into more trouble with respiratory suppression? And this, again, will be a volunteer study that you all do. Do you have any guesses from what you've seen that make you think it may go one way or the other, the postoperative pain recovery? The reason we're, we added that into the study is because my postoperative nurses are thinking they're seeing trends towards requiring a lot more pain medicines and regular cannabis users postoperatively. What we think we see, uh, we're never comfortable with until we can actually sit down and look at the numbers and prove it out. But uh, there seems to be trends, and my anesthesiologist friends are noticing the same thing with the other medicines they use for more complete anesthesia for surgical cases, that it seems like the trend is they're having to use more medicine. You know, it takes a while to get a study done, but uh, phase, phase two of the study is going to look at those things in more depth. Well, here's to scientific minds and willingness to do a study even if you have to do it for free. Not everything valuable in life pays you money. Sometimes it's just fun to to do something that that, uh, opens some doors and maybe will cause people to ask him other questions and advance the whole science. Mark Twardovsky is a doctor in Grand Junction. Mark and his colleagues observed that their volunteer-powered study wasn't in any way a double-blind, placebo-controlled analysis. He says there need to be more studies with more rigor. In the meantime, if you'd like to check out his paper on marijuana use and pain meds, it has just been published by the American Osteopathic Association. Up next, here's a song about atoms that are wishing they didn't have to split. I once had a little atom friend, but her friendship never grew. Before I knew it, she had split. And our relationship was through. No, a molecule I'd rather be. Not that far behind you. Just floating about the atmosphere. Always trying to find you. You're tuned to How on Earth. I'm Shelley Schlender. This song about atoms that don't want to split will be part of a music and visual celebration happening tonight at 530 
at CU Boulder's BioFrontiers Institute in the Jenny Smalley Carruthers Building in the Butcher Auditorium. This 5.30 p.m. event is titled Chords and Codons, Music About Science. After all, you can say it's all simply auditory frequencies you can define with data, or you can enjoy the song. Colin Campbell is a scientist who specializes in the highly numerical field of spectroscopy. He's on a Fulbright scholarship here in Boulder, where he's been experimenting with ways to hear things like the data patterns of DNA as music. He's also put poems about science to music. Now here's a conversation with Colin Campbell. We've tried to get people together who have interests in music, who have interests in science, and who have interests in um, the visualization of music and science. And, and we've created an event where we have some electronic pieces of music that have animation to go with them that feature in a particular scientific idea, some bits of music which have taken scientific data and turned it into music. And we'll also have some live music that's um, that's going to be sort of on the theme of evolution. So it's a big event of of what I really think of as cross-cultural communication, getting people together who don't normally get together, with the aim to try and make science a bit more accessible to the general public and open up a discussion with the general public about some of these scientific ideas. Well, Colin Campbell, you've mentioned artists, musicians, scientists, which one are you? Um, I'm all of those apart from artists. <laughs> I am a scientist professionally. That's, that's my job, my real job. And I'm a musician, you know, for fun. I looked at the Fulbright Fellowship and, the, and my time here in Boulder as, a, as an opportunity to bring both of those things together because, you know, I'm on a sabbatical where I have the opportunity to think about stuff that I don't normally think about and putting music and science together seemed like a, you know, a great idea to me. We've been listening to Sweeping the Sky, a melody that came from a microscopic image of a cell where you also do it as a homage to Caroline Herschel. Caroline Herschel, her CV. Caroline Herschel was the sister of the first ever astronomer royal, and um, she went on to be a really important scientist in her own right at a time when women didn't really do science. She was the first woman on record to be paid for having done science. And we used this bit of music that we derived from looking at a microscope image of the nucleus of a cell and, um, you know, there's bright spots and dark spots in it. And so we drew a line across it so that you get a kind of a, a profile. And we made... The bright parts, so the high parts, into high notes, and the low parts into low notes, and made a sort of derived a melody out of it. And because the student who had taken this picture, Anouk, is a female scientist, we thought there was an opportunity to try and incorporate that poem about Carolyn Herschel. And in fact, you have female students who are saying different parts of that poem. Exactly, to try and represent the diversity of voices working in the lab. Sweeping the sky. Slept a little. Wrote home that she was minding the heavens, sweeping the sky. And then you have a song called Frame Shift about what happens if you start shifting where a melody begins and comparing that to DNA. 
Yeah, and and that's based on a, a really interesting parallel between biology and music. You know, in, in biology, we've got this sort of central idea that your the code of your DNA determines the proteins that are made. And, you know, we think of DNA, usually write it out as a, as a s- sort of s- string of letters that represent the DNA. And um, those are grouped together into groups of three letters. And those letters code for amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. And so if you start on the first letter, you get um, a certain group of three, which will give you a certain amino acid. But if you start on the second letter, then you'll get a different group of three. So it makes a difference where you start reading um, that sequence of DNA, because it'll give you a different protein in the end and a different function. And that's called a frame shift mutation. And it's really important in diseases like cancer and cystic fibrosis and so I thought well you know a string of letters is also the way that you write out a melody so what happens if you start listening to a melody on the first note does it sound different if you start listening to it on the second note so I put together a sort of simple melody based around the chords um, G, C, D, C which is pretty conventional you you would hear in a lot of um, pop music for example Just like DNA, a chord in music is defined by a group of three notes. That's the, that's the minimum number of notes you need to define a chord. So I played the melody, you know, for the, for the chord of G, the notes are G, B, D, and then it comes up to C, and that's um, C, E, A. And so the melody starts on G and goes all the way through, and it sounds pretty conventional, but the next time around I shifted the melody so that it started on a B, on the B instead, and all the other notes come in exactly the same order, but it sounds different. And I think it just underlines the importance of... um, the importance it makes where you start reading a stream of letters because that's that's what makes a difference in a frame shift mutation and by doing it musically it just sort of highlights you know that idea that just changing the way that you read it slightly differently can make a big difference to the way that you perceive it Speaking of perceiving, has playing with this where you're not a professional musician. Am I right about that? You're not a professional. Absolutely right. Right, okay. So you're not a professional and your music is sweet and and and, and interesting, but it's not like you're expecting to get a Grammy for your music. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not, no. But on the other hand, has playing with music in this way informed you as a scientist? Yeah, I, I think it certainly made me think about things differently, which is which is a great thing because in science that's always what you're striving for, to look at the world in a different way. And by trying to look at the world through, you know, the through the lens of music, you can you can see things in a different way for sure, yeah. What is your hope when people see this and because it is going to be a visual presentation as well as a music presentation yep. today at the BioFrontiers Lab starting at five thirty. 
Are you hoping to have some discussion happen after this? Yeah, there's two um, sort of themes of discussion that, that quite often come out of this. One is, you know, isn't it nice that you can portray music, uh, you can p- portray science in this way and, you know, portray something like the sequence of a, of a molecule in this way? And the other discussion is, well, how can you further scientific understanding by doing this? And those are, you know, those are two very different discussions. One's about beauty and the other one's about utility. And we'll actually have an interesting presentation on on just that theme by some guys from the from the from the School of Music here in in Boulder as part of the event this evening. So you know, I I think those are great discussions that can come out of it. And how listening to data could maybe help you understand it better is is a really interesting thing to talk about. The event the event is the product of a big team of people. You know, it's. And just the way that science is usually the product of a big team of people as well. Um, it's, I think it's really important to, to note the contributions of everybody that's, that's put something into this. I've, I've had a huge amount of help from people across the musical spectrum, artistic and scientific. We've been speaking with scientist Colin Campbell. Tonight's performance is Chords and Codons, Music About Science. You can see it by going to CU Boulder's Biofrontiers Institute in Boulder. Go to the Jenny Smoley Carruthers Building in the Butcher Auditorium. The Chords and Codons performance tonight starts at 30. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Fulbright scholar and scientist Colin Campbell. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. 